Greetings, future fossils. I seem to have a way of recording these episodes long before they actually make it out into public. But as I mentioned with Alex Shakar's episode, that opens up a kind of beautiful and unplannable potential for synchronicity. And I think this week's episode counts as another instance of that. I just released an episode of the other podcast I host for my day job at the Santa Fe Institute with President David Krakauer talking about, among many other things, in a conversation on embracing complexity and systemic interventions, the importance of physical exercise in preventing spiraling frailty, which itself is the number one point of vulnerability with respect to COVID-19. The weaker you are, diabetic hypertension, old age, etc., the more likely you are to get sick from that. And so David and his brother John, who wrote the article we discussed in that episode, talk about physical exercise as a kind of complex medicine and how it's funny that we seek these silver bullet pharmaceutical solutions We pour enormous time and energy into them because they seem like it'll be easier to just take a pill. But really what that means is that we're taking the discount up front and paying a much greater cost down the line. And that if we properly understand the world and its complexity and we don't try to settle for simpler stories than actually fit that world, if we make the small upfront investment in accepting the terrible depth and dimensionality of the world as it is, then we can prevent really horrible consequences down the line. So it seems perfect to me that it would just so happen that I drop this episode with filmmaker Sanjay Rawal on the same day. Sanjay is a remarkable person for many reasons, uh, but he has also created this extraordinary, beautiful film, 3100, Run and Become, a film that takes us around the world to show us long-distance endurance runners in the American Southwest and the Kalahari Desert, in remote mountain in Japan, and in New York, where Indian guru Sri Chinmoy started a 3100-mile race that draws people from around the world every year to engage in an just unbelievable demonstration of commitment to self-transformation and service. I'm really grateful that I had this conversation with Sanjay, and we cover a lot. And in what now feels like the companion conversation to this one on Complexity Podcast... The missing piece in that conversation dominates this conversation I have with Sanjay. The question of what it takes to make that investment in ourselves and in the better world that we help make through the betterment of ourselves. David and John Krakauer see the low-hanging fruit of games as a way of engaging people in physical activity. But what better game is there... What has motivated more people to perform more astounding feats than prayer, service, the drive to transform oneself, all acts of devotion to something greater? 
So we turn our attention in this episode of Future Fossils to something that I feel like I haven't talked a lot about on the show lately, but seems especially important as the endurance race of our isolation stretches on into about the length of the 3,100-mile race. And many of us are asking why we're doing this. And the tension in our cultural discourse has been clearly figured as one between the satisfaction of quick fixes and an embrace of the uncertainty that we face together and our dedication to one another in our doing so. Before we get into this conversation, though, I want to take a moment to thank some people for joining the Future Fossils podcast Patreon. Naveen Srivatsav, Adele Anwar, and Ben Aldern, who just dramatically upped his pledge. Thank you for believing in the value of these conversations and all of the work I do around this podcast, including in the Facebook group and our new Discord server to connect and inspire people and help make these years of turbulent transition a little smoother and sweeter, more playful, and hopefully a little wiser. Everyone who's been shipping in every month, you're like the people standing by the side of the endurance race with the water and the sandwiches helping me run this distance. And it is not easy. (laughs) I've been doing this show for four years now and it's an extraordinary amount of work to bring this to you and i am just immensely immensely grateful for your support if you have the means and if you agree that this show should exist i hope that you'll consider bopping on over to patreon.com slash michael garfield and frankly even if you're completely broke I've put a ton of free stuff up there that I hope you can enjoy both during quarantine and for long after. And I hope that you'll avail yourself of those things. Feel free to reach out to me, futurefossilspodcast at gmail.com. If you'd like an invite to the new Discord server, the weekly Zoom calls I've been hosting on Sundays have taken on a life of their own. And it would be great to welcome you into that space for real-time community obviously it helps if you uh, rate and review this show on apple podcasts grow that community a little bit tell a friend but really growth is not my goal here Uh, deepening is my goal and for that reason i am so immensely grateful that i get to share this conversation with sanjay rawal with you today enjoy and i hope afterwards you feel as inspired as I did to get out and go for a run. Sanjay Rawal, it is a pleasure to have you on Future Fossils. Michael, it is such a pleasure to be on with you. Thank you. So you yourself have a really interesting story. And you have also made this spectacular documentary about long distance running as a spiritual practice. And I want to get to both of those things. I want to start 
with your own background. And, uh, you know, it says in your biography that you worked in the human rights and international development sectors for 15 years in over 40 countries before you got into filmmaking. And I'd love, that seems like the right place to start. <laughs> Fabulous. Like, wh- wh- where should I begin? I mean, this is clearly work that has left some sort of impression on your work as a documentarian. And uh, yeah, I'd just like to hear about what life was like for you before you decided to to pick up a camera and make that your professional move. Well, the, the great thing is it's, it's even more interesting than that well, one line of my biography indicates. I grew up in Colorado and California, uh, first generation immigrant, but I moved when I was less than a year old. My parents were both professors, but they came from pretty unusual backgrounds from in, in India. My dad's family, for example, were, were very prominent in, in fighting the British and in advocating for civil rights in India post-independence. And I didn't know any of this. So my dad and mom come to the U.S. and they kind of adopt pretty pedestrian lives, raising their kids and, you know, doing well at work. But around the age of 18 or 19, I started to have like these real misgivings about the path that I was on. My parents both have PhDs, and so they really pushed me for like higher education. And, you know, it's like, not that my parents were tiger moms. I think that tiger, <laughs> t- tiger is too soft of a word. But, you know, if I, if I got an A minus, like that was it for like, I was grounded. But in college, I started kind of just intuitively or accidentally feeling like there had to be a lot more to life than just job and ambition. And I did what all my cousins in India were begging me not to do. I found an Indian guru. Now, they were they thought it was crazy, like going to America and like, you know, instead of earning zillions, like finding an Indian guru. And it turned out that this particular teacher, Sri Chinmoy, had moved to New York City from India in the 60s. But he was part of an ashram in South India run by a fellow named Sri Aurobindo, who was oh, one of India's go, yeah. most yeah, he was one of India's most prominent revolutionaries and, you know, was was inadvertently put into jail for a bombing that he didn't commit. And in jail had visions of, of God, of, of the divine, of his place in the universe, of what his future needed to be in terms of service of, of, of India's soul. And he ended up renouncing that that kind of quest for outer freedom and really put all of this time into becoming an enlightened master and then teaching. So I end up in New York City just after I graduated from UC Berkeley and, you know, didn't want to have a job, didn't want to have a career. My parents were kind of flipping out, but I kind of convinced them that this was my graduate school, that I was going to a true master and I was going to hurl myself, you know, heart and soul into his teachings for as long as he'd have me. And in those years, I, w- I can't say I reinvented myself. I kind of feel like he, I, w- I was like a, po- a clay pot and Sri Chinmoy smashed it to bits and then reformed it into something totally different. So, so get this, get this. Like when I say human rights, it's like, it sounds like I was slogging away like in fields in Africa. And, and that happened later. But my foray into that world was Sri Chinmoy kind of pushing me on his friends like Desmond Tutu and others. And that's kind of how I really got a sense of how enjoyable for me and personally fulfilling that idea of serving people all over the world, kind of helping them with their 
their physical needs, their kind of like political needs, you know, ultimately, you know, spiritual stuff, um, how fulfilling that would be for myself as, as a career even. So you went around the world and you did this stuff. And, you know, f- first of all, I think for listeners who uh, want an additional point of contact, you know, somebody else that we've had on the show that had a, a real intense lifelong encounter with the legacy of Sri Aurobindo was William Merwin Thompson. And so if, if folks want to go back and I think he was episode 42 and 43, you know, and, and, and his efforts to establish an integral yoga, I think may I mean, maybe you can tell me if I'm reading this right or not, but it seems from this documentary, uh, which, by the way, we should point out is 3100 Run and Become, about the uh, the 3100 mile race that is taken on by um, fellow devotees of Sri Chinmoy, that this particular race and this documentary both feel kind of like extensions of an integral yoga in that they are not about the postponement of the work or rather, you know, not working towards a, I mean, obviously like a 3,100 mile race, you have a goal in sight and you're approaching it, but like there is a specific characteristic of this race. And I, I obviously we're skipping it. I'm, I'm skipping ahead of our conversation here to say this, but like it, it's carried on over a one half mile course in New York and so it's even though the race is like a New York to LA length race, it's really about a deepening engagement with this place, with the here and now. And uh, yeah, I don't know. That feels like, I don't know, just, just to hear that that influence is sort of behind some of this stuff starts to make more sense of it for me. So one might ask, like, how a country like India ever got colonized? I mean, it it supplied more than 25% of the world's GDP for like two or three or 4,000 years or more. And India's greatest epic, the Bhagavad Gita, our our equivalent of the Bible, you know, took place between really two warriors on the precipice of battle. Um, Sri Aurobindo was one of the first modern teachers to kind of revive that as, as he called it, and as, as, as you referenced, integral yoga, where you had to combine the physical, the emotional, the psychic with the metaphysical and, and the realms of higher consciousness, that all of these tools needed to go together. And that kind of led to this curious permutation of spiritual discipline called the Self-Transcendence 3100-Mile Race. It was founded by Sri Chinmoy in 1997. And in fact, you know, probably 50% of the participants consider themselves devotees of him. The other 50% come for the challenge, and not just the outer challenge, because like you mentioned, the race takes place around a square or rectangle, a rectangular block that's just a little bit more than a half a mile long. And people are required to do about 60 miles a day, six zero, 60 miles a day uh, <laughs> for, for 52 days to finish within the window. Now, the, the crux is, you know, why do they have to go around in a circle? I mean, there are number, a number of people that have run across the U.S., the equivalent of 3,000 miles. But each and every one will say, like, you know, you have to cross the Wasatch or the Sierras, the Wasatch, the Rockies. You have rolling hills all the way across the country, um, the Appalachian Mountains. You're running on a road. You can't get food. You can't get water. You can't go to the restroom when you need it. 
and therefore you can't really enter into a flow state for the majority of that run. But when you strip away the logistics and you put your aid and all of your necessities every half a mile and kind of erase the traffic and the street crossings, et cetera, the runners are enabled to go into their spiritual hearts and to kind of pull out a deeper source of energy. That's the only way the race is possible. You can't do these types of distances mind over matter. You actually have to literally, constructively, and wholesomely enjoy what you're doing. Mm, yeah, you know, I think there are definitely moments in this film, uh, you know, there is a subplot in which the failure of mind over matter is made really clear. And I want to get back to that. But first, I, I want to open a little bit more into this, you know, the fact that this film is, you are a committed runner. Your biography says you run an average of 50 miles a week. You've had a daily meditation practice for almost 30 years. So it's obvious that this film is something that is very uh, personal to you. And it was easy to kind of, in light of that, it was easy to kind of imagine you and your film crew on the sides of this race, like you see all of the people supporting these runners in this very pure spirit of service. And so in that light, it makes it obvious how this kind of work is connected again, to the work that you did before you moved into filmmaking. I am really just curious, you know, part of this story is the story about how we have lost this practice in our lives and how very, very few people maintain a, a link to our evolutionary history of this kind of relationship with the body. And that that is in many ways directly related to, uh, again, these concerns of human rights and international development that you mentioned being involved in, in your uh, sort of former professional life. And one more time, I'd love to hear more about that work and then what inspired you to get into filmmaking in the first place, as we tell this completely out of order. <laughs> no, it, it's, it's great. You know, I, I was a, always a terrible listener, but what working in human rights and, and, and you know, philanthropy and development taught me was that my will is less than one-tenth of one percent of the equation in terms of, of, of success. And in, in projects where you're going into the middle of nowhere with resources and you're trying to deploy those resources, nothing is permanent or nothing is lasting unless those resources are spent 100% in accordance with the will of the people they're trying to help. And so like, you know, what, one of the common projects that people undergo in, in Africa and, and in the Middle East is building wells. And if you just go and drop wells in the middle of nowhere, and they're not the right kind of wells without the, the right kinds of pumps, they break in a few months. And you might be able to tell people in the US that you've dug a million wells, but if none of them are working, what's the point? Whereas if you really go in and you understand what people's water and sanitation needs are, then you end up building something that's maybe a little less sexy. It's water for kids, you know, in urinals. It's, it's, it's toilets for young girls. It's water facilities for animals. And it just doesn't fit that metric. So when I started making films, I realized like I had the tool set to really dive deep into people's stories. And as you know, in, in the film 3100 Running to Come, we've got three subplots. We've got a Navajo ultramarathoner, we've got Kalahari Bushman hunters, and we spent time in this really out-of-the-way esoteric mountain region of Japan with these monks that, you know, walk and trek for thousands of days across, you know, years. 
none of these three stories, none of these three cultures had ever opened their, them, their, themselves up to a filmmaker the way they did for this movie. And I believe that's 100% due to my ability you know, not to care about what I wanted. And just to go, hey, I'm thinking about this idea. It can't be done without you guys. You guys aren't just characters or people whose stories I'm going to take. And you're not going to be this. This I'm not going to exploit you that way. I want to do something that really holds true or represents who you are and what this practice means to you. So what would that look like? And that was the basis for all those questions. And I didn't really care what they said as long as it was really well thought out. And I told them, like, whatever you guys tell me to film, I will film and I will make the story. And so that was kind of the link, really. Mm. You know, just to zoom out a little bit, something that you just said, you know, or what you just said about all this seems linked to a paper I'm helping a friend write right now about the appropriation of indigenous artwork in television and like specifically the the sort of complicated role of the Pacific Northwestern American indigenous in Twin Peaks where they um you know it's it's very easy to argue that David Lynch is you know that this whole thing is about a, is a critique of the way that the the people have been forcibly separated from their land and that their cultural traditions have been museumized and brought into the spaces of settlers by a process that looks like celebration or enshrinement, but it's very difficult to tease, you know, what side of the Mobius strip you're on when it comes to, like you just said, you know, I'm, I'm really curious how for you in your relationship with people like the Japanese monks in this film who have not allowed people to film this race for decades. You know, obviously there are very sensitive concerns around, like you said, you know, the fact that you're telling their story. And I'm curious, like what that looks like, you know, how you navigate this kind of complicated zone <laughs> in your work. I mean, this is sort of a, a more kind of a, a general question about documentary film, I guess, but it's something where it's just been burning in my mind lately what it takes to really make a good faith effort at being a storytelling ally rather than a cultural appropriator. It's a, it's a, it's a great and, and, and very nuanced topic. I mean, I, I used the word exploitation earlier. And anytime you go to anybody and you ask them for the rights to their story, you're exploiting them. And, and that's true in my work. That's true in everyone's work. The question is, like, how much exploitation are you as a filmmaker willing to shoulder? And are the characters fully cognizant of that exploitation? And using their own awareness of the situation, can you minimize the exploitation so that the benefits really outweigh that particular act of, of thievery? So some filmmakers, and I'm not saying all, but some filmmakers, and anthropologists, you know, will really go in and they'll peel off an aspect of a story that's not the whole story and that will leave a bad taste. I mean, that's, that's just the black and white example. Other times, the subjects themselves know that they'll either get fame, they'll get notoriety, they'll get something fulfilling for themselves if they share their story completely and transparently. It might create some problems for them, but the reward outweighs the risk. 
in the case of working with indigenous people, the decisions are made on a community level. And even when I made my first film, which was called Food Chains, about migrant farm workers in Florida, I was profiling a collective uh, called the Coalition of Immokalee Workers based in Immokalee, Florida. And they made their decisions, you know, as a unit. There was no leader. There was no figurehead. A committee of 22 really navigated every single small and big decision they had to make as a farm worker collective. And so going into communities like that, you know, the first thing is to understand the process, that you're going to get incredibly weak stories if you're just dealing with individuals and those individuals are basing their participation based on that reward versus risk. Mm. You're going to get incredibly deep stories if you're willing to go through the process. And, you know, with the Japanese monks, it took a year to get permission. And along the whole way, we were traveling to Japan, you know, on their schedule, on our dime, but on their schedule, meeting them sometimes just for 20 minutes. Like I would fly to Kyoto from New York to meet them for 20 minutes. Um, (laughs) And when they saw that I was not in a rush and that I was completely surrendered to their way of making decisions, they understood that I would not just be okay with the outcome, but that I would be a good partner to work with as we started filming and running into obstacles. It was the same thing with the Navajo that that we profiled. You know, we made multiple trips. We spent a lot of time in the community with the characters. They were constantly getting permission for things from elders, and sometimes the elders would say no. And we knew that we couldn't ever show any dissatisfaction for those decisions because that, in in a way, would be disrespecting the process that we had committed to. Yeah, I think that's the community-level piece of it is interesting, right? Because, again, to draw on my buddies piece that I'm, I'm working on, you know, I think part of the, the legacy that we have to undo here is he's writing about the, you know, the history of Native American art collection and how a lot of it was at the tribal level, people say, no, you can't have this particular sacred artifact. And then art collectors would get in there and break it up and try to negotiate with people one-on-one. And like you said, you know, it was it, at that point, it became about individual benefit. And in some cases, I think he said it was like the Zuni would actually kill you if you sold, <laughs> if you sold the work, because, you know, it's like the, the coherence. And it, it kind of reminds me, um, maybe this is a tangent, but it kind of reminds me of when, you know, Kevin Kelly talked about the way that the Amish regard technology. And it's a very similar thing. It's, it's you know, how much how much benefit does this really provide our community? And it's, you know, we're not anti-technology, but we're going to sit down together. If you want to see this, the same kind of dynamic on the other side of the equation on the receiving end, it's like, how much do we regard the benefit of say cellular phones as something that's going to strengthen us as a community or something that's going to decohere us and um, I don't know, that is probably a tangent, but before I, I flip on this and address some of the sort of more core talking points, it, it seems only right to let you reflect on that if you're interested. Oh, no, d- totally. It's like that, that, that's the kind of obverse reason for the movie I made. You know, understanding that most of the world doesn't have any affinity for running, I wanted to make a movie um, that would appeal to them about running. 
And, you know, we really looked at the kind of core purpose that running plays in cultures that have kind of had an unbroken lineage of that practice that stretches back, you know, 1,000, 1,500 years, or in the case of the Bushmen, 125,000 years, kind of, you know, circled the idea of running as a religion. And in fact, our Kalahari Bushmen characters off camera, you know, they, they told us that from the beginning of their oral history, running was the way that they connected their physical energy to the spiritual energies of the earth. And I talked to them about, you know, the kind of evolutionary biology hypotheses that mankind and womankind's greatest advantage on the savanna was their ability to run long distances. And they giggled at that because they said that evolution isn't form first, it's consciousness first. And that when a being's consciousness can't be expressed in the form that it's in, the universe creates new opportunities for that consciousness to expand. And they subsequently said that the advantage that men and women had on the savanna was they could draw from the spiritual energies of Mother Earth and Father Sky on a much deeper level than animals. And that particular energy allowed them to overcome their weakness vis-a-vis catching, you know, two to three thousand pound African elk as they chased them for days across the savanna, you know, crisscrossing paths with lions and hyenas, etc. And so the film looks at that aspect of how integral running had been for spiritual progress. And then basically the film uses the analogy of the world's longest race, the 3,100-mile race, as this return to the power, the spiritual power of, of running to transform human consciousness. And in doing so in this race, push people towards goals that didn't seem possible, i.e. running 3,100 miles. Mm. So I'm absolutely betraying my my cultural situation by bringing up the fact that the more we learn about sports and physiology and, and you know, the neuroscience of exercise, the more we learn that this kind of what some of us might call punishing endurance exertion is really useful in terms of maintaining uh, neuroplasticity, uh, not just, you know, cardiovascular benefits, but that it really changes the way that our brains operate. And, and I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit more about what you know about the neurological dimensions of this and how those dimensions were reflected or not reflected in the way that these different cultures that you engaged with for this film regard their own spiritual relationship to running. I mean, obviously there's like, you can push yourself until you are in a a sort of transcendent flow state. But I get the sense that like you just alluded to that there's a lot more diverse and deeper stuff going on. It's a great and fascinating topic. A Hopi elder in Arizona told a group of us, mostly native runners, as we were kind of running from Flagstaff to Bears Ears, he said one morning as a prayer, in his language, which was translated to this, find joy through exertion. Now, think about exertion, whether you're, you're lifting a 20 or 50 or 100 pound dumbbell, or whether you're really trying to focus on finishing a paper within a deadline. In those moments, we rarely find joy. We rarely even think about being happy. We're trying to grind through it. We're trying to push through it. And ultimately, the destination 
the result is what brings us happiness or, or dissatisfaction. But in India's greatest epic, the Bhagavad Gita, the, the teacher, the master, who in this case was a charioteer, Krishna told the warrior Arjuna, you have the right to act, but not to the fruits thereof. The Hallmark version of that is the journey is the destination. But, <laughs> yeah. but that, that's the formula. It's like, all you have the right to do is to act. And then the question is, are you going to enjoy the action or are you going to go through it in a robotic manner? And that's the crux of finding joy through exertion, that when you try to separate your mind from expectation of constantly thinking of where you're at in any given moment, what you're doing, where it's going to go and what that result might be, you start looking beyond the mind. You start looking to emotion. You start looking at the power of silence and the emotions and the feelings that exist within silence. I mean, that's what the point of, of meditation and prayer and contemplative practices have always been, to realize that there's a whole universe of experience in the act of trying to silence your mind and open up other centers of your being. You know, the main one is, is the spiritual heart right in the center of one's chest. So in these moments of exertion, unless you know where that calm lies, if you don't have that experience from a contemplative practice, it's almost impossible to bring that into the moment. Scientists study the flow state as something that happens accidentally. But this Hopi elder kind of blew that out of the water, basically saying that if you can find joy in the exertion, you are in the flow state. And in fact, that's a definition of the flow state. It's the idea of being in maximal exertion that might be causing physical pain, but the, the flow is enjoying the moment. And when you enjoy that moment and you separate yourself from the expectation of what the result might be, what actually happens is that the result is far beyond what you imagined or what you conceived or, or what you hoped for. And that's the idea, that's the title of this race, the 3,100-mile race. It's called the Self-Transcendence 3,100-mile race. And it looks at that kind of ancient maxim that the happiest moments in life come when we're in a flow and when we're transcending our own expectations, when we're transcending our mind's own limitations. So there is something, how do I put this? I get the sense that this is not just your narrative framing here, although it is certainly aligned with your narrative framing and personal lens on this. But the film really makes it clear that all of these people are not just running for themselves. There's this great conversation between two of the Japanese monks about one asking the elder monk in the situation about whether his running really serves the world, you know, whether he is, whether it has some kind of action or whether it's simply to purify him to be a better vessel for action. And then, you know, you go over to the, the Kalahari and, you know, they're actively out there hunting food for their community. And then you go to New York and in the race is this uh, Ukrainian guy who says that, you know, he's, he's running for the peace of Ukraine, you know, that, you know, his story is really, really potent and acute. And, and it's, it's interesting that, yeah, it, it doesn't seem to me like it's even so much about self-transcendence through the flow state as it is about the motivation to run being tied into this service. And so like, this is a little more 
it's a little more obvious how you serve by telling the stories of these people as a documentarian. It's a little less obvious, perhaps, why it is that so many people in so many different cultures regard running these long distance trial races as itself an act of service. And I'd, I'm, I'd love to hear you talk about that. No, you, you, you hit the nail on the head. Like the framework that I just supplied it is me trying to understand what happened in the film. You know, we, we just went out and filmed four or five stories. And I knew just from storytelling structure that the only way these stories would go together is if the grand motivator on a positive or negative side was death. And so in the film, our main character, it's revealed, was motivated to start running by the death of his mother some 22 years before. Another runner in the 3,100-mile race almost died in a previous ultramarathon race, and that's always hanging over her head. Our Navajo runner is running in tribute of his father, who was you know, basically kidnapped by the U.S. government, put into boarding school, and then escaped as a six-year-old running 110 miles back home. That's obviously a fight against dying, um, both culturally and physically trying to get home. The Japanese monks, as, as you know from watching the film, they're required to circle a mountain uh, for a thousand days. And the courses and the routes vary day by day from 11 miles a day to 50 miles a day towards the end. And if they don't finish any one single day's circuit, they're obliged to take their life. Um, and so while they're not thinking about death and while they're, they're, they're focusing on bliss and the service aspect, the positive aspect, death looms large. And our Kalahari Bushmen are hunting illegally and on penalty of death, but they're also trying to, to kill something to survive. So we focused really on kind of like the rebirthing aspect of, of running, the idea of running away from something, past trauma, uh, running towards something happiness, what might be out there or in the present or past or even future that might make the running stop, if this all makes any sense. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and also, now it seems like a good point to touch back into that, you know, bringing up earlier the mind over matter thing. You spend a good time of this film on one of the women in the 3100 race, who seems <laughs> resistant to the advice of her medical support team and resistant to the food and so on. So there's like, there's this other thing that seems to be going on here for at least some of these people that is a little bit more about the uh, internal conflict, you know, trying, like you said, you you mentioned that, you know, she was this, this person that almost died in an ultra marathon years prior and it seemed like she was a little bit more inward and and tormented and in conflict with herself. And I may be reading into this too much, and I'm curious your thoughts on this, but it seems as though <laughs> like a, a running for someone else is like a power multiplier, whereas like running in order to defeat your own ghosts seem to be like a wound or a handicap in this situation. No, you, you, you're totally correct. The, the, this woman is a professional cellist in probably the most musically competitive city in the world, in Vienna, Austria. And she'd never failed at anything in her life, except that one ultra marathon, which put her into a coma 
some 20 odd years before she attempted the 3,100 mile race. That looms large over the race and she's never actually able to shake the notion that this might just be a really, really, really bad idea. But like you said, everyone else in the race is running without the concept of failure or success, where she has this goal in mind, 3,100 miles, and she is going to reach it come hell or high water. Everyone else is trying to take themselves out of the rigidity of the mind and put themselves into their heart to make the act of running a little less selfish. And that goes to what you alluded to in the previous question, you know, the the two Japanese monks talking about their motivations, whether the act of moving and the act of this kind of selfish sounding quest is really selfish. Running, weirdly enough, is something that will deliver only what your intention is. If you want to have a beautiful body, running will do that. If you want to become incredibly healthy, running will do that. But most of us don't necessarily realize that for thousands of years, humanity has used running to help people become better people. And specifically, that act of bettering yourself, just by its very nature, cannot be selfish. Once you better yourself, you better the world. And that's the kind of ethos of a majority of the runners in the film. It's like they are running for other people. They're running symbolically or physically for other people. They're running to become better people and better citizens of the world. So that, by its very nature, is something selfless. You mentioned in the press kit that ESPN tried to do a movie about the 3100 and failed. And I'm wondering (laughs) if, to call back to what we were talking about earlier, if that wasn't to do with a sort of spiritual misalignment, no offense, ESPN, but I'm, I'm curious to hear the story of like how it could be so difficult for a professional sports media organization to cover a race around a high school in New York City. It, it, it's again, it's a, it's a great question. You know, nothing really happens outwardly in this race. People are running from 16 to 18 hours a day in 95 to 102 degree weather. They're eating 10,000 calories a day, which means they're eating and drinking constantly. They're very focused on what they're doing. They're not scattered. And so just technically, it's really hard to mic up people and to kind of film the race like a reality TV show with hundreds of cameras and big production crews, because that would make the race impossible. And in 3100 Run and Become, we only devote about 45 minutes of the 80-minute runtime to the race in order to really show how and why the different parts of that race are possible. We interweave the Navajo, Kalahari, Bushman, and Japanese Marathon Monk stories. Otherwise, I would imagine that just watching people running around the block would be a very (laughs) difficult movie to make interesting. I mean, they somehow covered, you know, Magic the Gathering. So I don't know. But yeah, it's there's another piece to this that I think, you know, I don't want to carve this conversation too deeply and narrowly because there's so many different branches to crawl out on. I'm editing an episode right now with Tanya Harrison, who just wrote a book about the moon landing and the the book, you know, For All Humankind. And she and her co-author, Danny Bednar, are talking about how that project was in spite of the way that we in the United States tend to nationalize that victory, that accomplishment, the Apollo missions really were 
an international collaboration and they were witnessed internationally and understood as an achievement of all humankind, not just the United States. And there's something beautiful in the flavor of heroism that we, I think, in many respects in the last, you know, since that time, we have sort of lost or forgotten about, which is on display, which is very evident in this extraordinary race that has like no promotional campaign, no prizes, and that these, you know, that these people are, like we've said time and time again in this conversation, that they're doing it for other people, you know, and I think about it like, you know, right now our heroes are people, you know, like the next person who steps on the moon might be doing it for SpaceX or whatever, you know, it's not the same, you know, when somebody wins Tour de France, unless they've got a really good personal link, it's like they're covered in logos, you know, and so I, I don't know, I, I'm curious, there's something about, you know, the way that your film points to and helps to remind us of an extremely vital and ancient form of heroism that I think we need a booster shot for. Like we need we need this reminder right now in history. I, I, I agree. It, 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 it seems at least on the surface that humanity is moving towards very, very self-centered goals. E- even when you look at the I, the kind of mainstream ideas around spirituality, there's this set of words used, self-care, that's focusing on superficial ideas around not even self-betterment, but self-preservation and just trying to exist. Whereas from a purely Eastern standpoint, and not necessarily the politically Eastern standpoint of India and China right now, but just from the spiritual standpoint, the idea of self-betterment means expanding one's sense of self to not just take into account your needs, but the people around you. And the ultimate goal of that is to realize that the consciousness that exists within you exists within everything. And it's like you as a drop falling into the ocean. You retain your individuality as a drop, but at the same time, you can very much you know, identify with the entire ocean. It doesn't seem like anything in the kind of commercial aspects of spirituality or even sports is pushing towards that communal universal idea. And on the contrary, it's it's, it's serving to isolate people and to make people feel like their needs, their physical and their, quote, pseudo-spiritual needs are what's going to make them happy. Yeah, you know, you, you mentioned in the film that Sri Chinmoy actually devoted a good deal of his life to encouraging the sports as a kind of unifying human project that I think a lot about citizen diplomacy. I think a lot about the original intentions of the Olympics. And I'd like to hear more about that particular work and how he saw things and the origins of this race. I think that piece of it is really key. Yeah. I mean, it's like even, even for people who don't like sports, if, if you live in a major city and the team is doing well, the city is a lot happier, you know, this, despite the political lunacy and economic lunacy of the Olympics and even the World Cup, when, when global sporting events like that happened, you know, wars literally stopped. And that idea of at least as a nation coming together 
and then, you know, rooting for your nation. And then ultimately, as your nation loses, picking other nations and individuals to root for while billions of people are doing the same thing is incredibly uplifting and inspirational, you know, no matter whether you're a fan full time or not. It's easy to be swept away and very enjoyable to be swept away in that. The 3,100-mile race kind of came from a friendship that Sri Chinmoy had with the organizers of the then-forming New York City Marathon in the 70s, like in this running boom where everybody was encouraging everyone to go out and to race and to do your best. You know, people began, surprisingly, to get tired of just running 26.2 miles. They wanted to start running more. And so the New York Roadrunners Club with Street Chinmoy started something called the Six-Day Race in 1983, which was a revival of this incredibly popular pastime in the late 1800s, where people would, would gather in Madison Square Garden to see who could run or walk or crawl the most miles around a quarter-mile track for six days. And it was the first opportunity for athletes to become made men or made women for life. Like if you won that race, you would actually earn the equivalent of millions and you'd be set up for the rest of your life. And so in 1983, they revived that outdoors in Flushing Meadow Park where the the U.S. Open is held. And um, then it moved to a 10-day race, to a 1,300-mile race, to one edition of a 2,700-mile race. And from 1997 onwards, You know, in addition to the six-day race still running every year, there is a 3,100-mile race, and about anywhere between 8 and 15 people from around the world come and do it. You know, very few Americans have done it, but a number of Eastern Europeans. This year, we'll have the first Japanese, the first Taiwanese, the first Mongolian participants to attempt the distance. So there's another piece of this, which is that it's not just the international solidarity, but... You know, you mention in this press kit, multi-day running is a gender equalizer and that after 10 days, gender becomes irrelevant in these races. And that's very curious. I really did appreciate the balanced representation, even though it's not the kind of thing that, you know, obviously the Japanese monastery has its own sort of history of there's a very specific kind of person that is allowed to embark on that particular quest. And, you know, in broadly running culture, I think, you know, th- there's a lot of conversation about, you know, it, it kind of doesn't matter what age you are, if you want to run a marathon or, you know, what sex you are and so on. But anyway, I'd love to hear more about how endurance closes the gender gap. So there's two parts to it. The best times of men are across the board much greater than the best times of the top women. But if you look at multi-day running or even ultra marathoning, you know, a 50k, 50 miles, 100 miles, 200 miles and above, if you look at the entire field of participants and segregate them by the two genders here, male and and, and female, you find that the longer the distance the smaller the gap is between male and female performance. Like in the marathon, I think it's 10 or 11% difference across the board that men run faster than women. But when you get up to like six days across the board, not looking at the top men, but just the entire field, that percentage gap is reduced to about a quarter of a percent. So from like 10% at the marathon, to a quarter percent 
in multi-day racing. And there's various different ideas around that. Number one, when you're running that long, you don't need to have speed. And, and men across the board in every sprinting, middle distance and distance activity are faster than women. But when you're running 16, 18, 20 hours a day or even more, you're looking at different tools and it's more about the ability to move forward than to move fast. Mm. So do you think this is like speculative, but you know, a lot of the graves of warriors across Northern Europe have through more modern, sophisticated techniques turned out to be the graves of women that the more we learn about Neanderthal and Paleolithic Homo sapiens, you know, Cro-Magnon hunting, the more we realize that women were more actively involved in that than we once thought. What you're mentioning strikes to the, the, the very heart of evolution. And this kind of, at least uh, ultra distance running and these super endurance events show that there really was no weaker sex or stronger sex. There were stronger individuals you know, like if you just look at running, the fastest male runners are faster than the fastest female runners. And there are exceptions, rare exceptions here and there. But if you look at the act of running and ultra distance running, technically, I think the gap at really long distances is just culturally specific. It's basically belief. Like, you know, with, with Roger Bannister, before men in this case, had broken the four-minute barrier. It seemed insurmountable. Roger Bannister did it, and then two or three other people did it within a year. And after 10 years, dozens of more men were able to break that barrier. I see with women that because, I believe at least, because of cultural or societal norms that you know make the majority of women feel like they're at a disadvantage to men, you don't necessarily see women in ultra-distance running on the whole, running at their full potential. But there are rare women who come out, like Courtney Dowalter or Camille Heron, both Americans, who best entire fields of men, and in some cases have, have beaten every single man and every single woman in a race. That idea of pushing the bar, that gender-specific bar higher, pulls more people ahead. So with multi-day running, especially with the 3,100 that, that, you know, women have played second before, but no woman has won. I mean, it's, it's just my opinion that no woman has won because no woman has tried to win. And mm. if a woman comes in specifically knowing that she's just as strong as every single man in the field, then it's like the belief will catch up to the potential. Mm. You know, that's aligned with this other question, which is, you, you kind of provoke folks in this press kit, you know, that the entrance to this race look nothing like the so-called prototypical ultra runner. You say why they complete the 3100 and you can't. And it's like, you know, I wonder how much of that has to do with the perhaps greater likelihood that these people are practitioners, like regular meditators, and they are somewhat less beholden to or enslaved by the thoughts they're having. So I'm curious about how you understand the relationship here between meditation and running as two separate things and then two interacting things and, and in what, you know, how that mixes and how that contrasts and so on. 
well, the, the, this is this follows directly from from the last question and discussion. We're limited by our capacity to dream, and a lot of our our, our strongest dreams are are based on some strong facet or segment of reality or experience. So when your dreams are just based on physical realities, running something like the 3,100-mile race seems impossible. But people who have experience in meditation realize there's more to life than the physical. There's more to life than the mind and your thoughts. There's more to life than what you see with your eyes, that there's a wellspring of energy, of positivity, of happiness, joy, all good things that don't come externally. By silencing your mind, you can find all of those things in your heart. So, you know, this, these contemplative practices give people a much broader toolkit for life. And when you're looking at something that people say is impossible, if your heart tells you, no, it's not impossible, it's definitely possible, you can overcome doubts that people have, you can overcome ideas of self-doubt, and you know at the same time that your belief is grounded in another kind of portal of energy. And so when, when it comes to, in the case like we, we were just speaking of, of, of women achieving great things in realms that people say they aren't superior to men, you know, much less equal. In the case of ultra distance running, the field of, of women's performance had been pushed by people that were supremely confident in their abilities, supremely confident in their determination and their grit and their ability to minimize pain and minimize suffering and minimize limitation by refocusing their mind and ultimately being happy, cheerful, enthusiastic as they push themselves to the limit. I mean, they literally are trying to find joy through exertion. And that erases all of these barriers. Yeah, there's, it's just a delight to watch in this film the peaceful and contented facial expressions of all of the people in this race. You know, and I, I think about just the sort of invisible epidemic of a sedentary lifestyle in the United States, you know, my own life being far less active than I would like. I mean, at least, at least where I work, they kind of encourage standing desks, but I mean, that's, that doesn't even come close to the kind of, you know, you're not standing at a desk eight hours a day for self-transcendence. I feel like this film has the potential and in general, you know, the encouragement of running culture has the potential to really alleviate some extraordinarily difficult root problems in the Western world as, as we become sort of, you know, less and less embodied. And I'd like to invite you to talk a little bit, not just about your thoughts on that, but sort of how do you imagine a future in which this is not the kind of problem that it is today and like what it would take for us to get there. <laughs> because for most of us, it's like, you know, we've been trained on, you know, air conditioning and convenience. And I mean, it takes a really excellent inspiring film like yours to even get me embarrassingly to consider this kind of practice. It's very kind of you to say that, you know, I, I weirdly think that solutions to a lot of problems are simple. I mean, th there's probably more than these two examples, but I can only really think of two things that you can go to any city, find a group, not speak the same language you know, share this experience and never forget it. 
Like you can go to almost any major city in the world and just look on Instagram or Facebook and find running groups. You can go and go for a jog with a group in Tokyo, have an incredible time, maybe have a beer or non-alcoholic beer or pizza with them afterwards, and make some lifelong friends, even without sharing a word of the same language. The other activity is food. You know, you can go share a meal with people in other parts of the world. You know, you can go and, and eat at a boisterous restaurant or a boisterous bar and ask questions and get a, a sense of who people really are and leave from that with memories that will last a lifetime. So when it comes to like societal ills and the idea that so many of us are suffering because we live in silos or we live, you know, doing activities that don't connect us to each other, simple things like running groups or walking groups where you can do a physical activity that takes you out of a physical comfort zone, makes you vulnerable, you can share that with other people, creates a sense of, of well-being that's much much deeper than the idea of self-care. You know, finding ways to enjoy food with people, traveling, and enjoying the idea of sharing meals with people, even within your own community, that's also something that takes a very intimate activity, feeding oneself, and makes it communal, and makes it something that puts you out of the experience of doing something just for yourself. There's probably more examples like that, but it's these types of activities that I think are going to be critical for the future happiness of men and women. So I guess that leads into a more nuanced question about the way that you as a runner practice. I mean, do you do you find yourself most frequently running alone or or in in groups? I mean, I probably much easier to find a group in New York just because of scale. But if you do practice both of those, how are the rewards different for you? So most of my training is is alone. And I, I frankly love running alone. I don't run with music. I try to use that half an hour, hour or an hour and a half run session to practice my meditation, to like slow my mind down. And as our Navajo character said, you know, he feels that when the Navajo run, they're they're praying to Mother Earth with their feet, they're breathing in Father Sky. They're asking Mother Earth and Father Sky for their blessings and willing to show Mother Earth and Father Sky that they're willing to work for those blessings. And so that idea of my feet praying to Mother Earth, breathing in Father Sky, the idea that no matter where I am on this planet, my feet are always on the Earth, even if it's the Mother Mother Earth is under the asphalt. And I'm always breathing in the same atmosphere, the same cosmos that everyone else is breathing in. Those thoughts... Are, are very kind of expansive for me. But at the same time, I'm part of, the, the, I'm part of a, a little running club that puts on a lot of races for the community. So my service is like creating opportunities for people to come together, you know, run their hardest, run their best. We always serve pancakes afterwards, you know, and then enjoy, you know, the, the fruits of, of that experience of transcendence around food. So for me, it's like those two ideas of like running and sharing a meal, they, they, we, we kind of merge them together in the same activities. So I, I, I love that aspect of running culture, of creating opportunities for people to come together, even if it's just once every couple of weeks. 
I imagine that that has flowered for you in really lovely ways since this film has come out. I mean, it's now been almost a year and a half since it debuted. And how is how has it been to watch the rippling effects of this movie? And how has that changed things for you? And how have you seen it change things for other people? It's something that I think about because when I when I release the movie as as anybody releasing anything into the commercial realm, whether it's a book or TV show, you kind of want, you kind of need the movie to do really, really well coming right out the gate. Every, everything media-wise is organized around successes rather than things that have a slow burn. But for better or for worse, a really good friend of mine who's not a filmmaker told me, I think this movie is going to unfold the same way as the race. And I was like thinking, oh, okay, that's 52 days and it'll all be out there and it'll all be great. But it's gone out with much less fanfare, just like the race, without any gigantic endorsements or press hits. But at the same time, I get, I, friends tell me stories every week. Like a friend of mine, Knox Robinson, who's the, the founder of a really big, prominent run club called the Black Roses in New York City, was wearing a T-shirt that referenced the movie. And he was just at a cafe in Los Angeles when some older, super hip dude came up to him and said, hey, you know, that movie about the 316 is the best I've ever seen. It was kind of street lingo, like 16 refers to 1600 meters, which is a metric mile. So, you know, this guy kind of just spit out this really beautiful couplet, you know, thinking that my friend Knox, you know, made the movie. So, you know, I, I hear little things like that, that, you know, people who are looking for the language to express the experiences they're having and running are finding kindred spirits in this film and realizing that literally they're not alone, that while they're feeling kind of godly or spiritual moments in their running, it's something that's not just natural, but it should be expected if you run with those types of intentions in mind. And so that, that, that aspect of the film slowly rolling out and we opened in New Zealand last month and I was there and I'm going to Australia for the opening in March. And again, it's a year and a half after we, we rolled out in the U.S. And while we didn't get a chance to release in thousands of theaters across 40 countries, it's kind of happening slowly at its own pace, very much like the race. <laughs> you know, I, I know that you've listened to some of this show in the absurd duration it took for us to actually link up for this conversation. And so you probably know that one of the big motivations for me was it sounds like it's in alignment with your experience of your own work, which is acknowledging that often the largest audience is not the audience waiting at the debut, that every creative work has its own developmental timeline and that you know, we're at a moment in history that I, I perhaps foolishly imagine will be of intense interest to future historians. I've had some people on the show kind of take the piss out of that, you know, and you know, ask, you know, just how interested would you be and how long would your interest be in like, you know, your great great grandfather's diary or whatever. But I I guess what this all comes to is an invitation that I like to give people at the end of these conversations to explore 
what it means for you to have devoted yourself in this way to work that you know will just continue to trickle out there and connect with people in its own time and that you are planting trees, the fruit of which you may never eat. I think about this a lot, actually. Yeah, go for it, please. Imagine that you were writing a poem to God, you know, a thousand years ago, uh, a paean, like if you were St. Francis of Assisi, like writing a prayer, you would have no expectation that within the span of weeks, millions of people around the world would be reciting that prayer. <laughs> in fact, it, w- it, would have been, it would have been physically impossible. But in, in this day and age, you know, when we're doing things for spiritual reasons, that commercial aspect infiltrates our mind. And somehow we think that like, this is the best paper on this subject that's ever been written and zillions of people are going to read it. And then we set ourselves up for disappointment. But I, I, I realized as, as, I was, as I was thinking about what defines success for me on this project, you know, films aren't going anywhere. Even though they're a completely new invention in the span of human experience, we're so visual, I can't see this stuff disappearing. So I'm making something, I'm telling myself, this film is something for the seekers of the future, for people looking for a unique perspective, not just from 2018 or 2017 or 2020, but looking for a unique, timeless perspective that stretches back tens of thousands of years and will hopefully stretch forward thousands of years. This film will serve to fulfill that need. And so I go, maybe a million people aren't going to watch this film in my lifetime. But in the lifetime of this film, millions of people are going to watch it. And that makes the effort feel worthwhile. And that makes it feel like I was actually of service to someone, even if that person hasn't been born yet. Mm. So if you were in conversation with the unborn future audience of this film, what question or questions would you have for them? I, I would ask them how they fundamentally want to approach the idea of self-realization, of understanding what their potential is, understanding what their place is in the world, what their purpose is in the world. And those are actually questions that people have been discussing in various communities around the world for like in the case of India, for 25,000 years. So they're, they're not new questions, but they're the types of questions that people always ask at the beginning of their spiritual journeys. Questions questioning their place within the community, their place within the larger world, and then they began to seek answers. And so I, I would ask those questions just with the idea that this movie, although it's not of the kind of scale or scope of you know, a magnificent opus, you know, towards God. It's, it's something that can at least let people know that those questions are powerful and that by asking those questions, you know, they'll be on a path to a deeper sense of fulfillment. Mm. Sanjay, it's, it's a, an honor and a pleasure to be one small contribution to your epic podcast tour and to to hopefully help turn some folks on to your work. Well, Michael, I I very rarely get to talk to geniuses. In fact, I surround myself by dumb people just to make myself feel good. So it's an absolute honor to spend some time with you. 
Thanks a lot. Where would you, <laughs> uh, where would you send people uh, who want to learn more about your stuff? Where where can people see your your films, uh, etc.? Well, I'm on Instagram at thirty one hundred film or at Mr. Sanjay R. You get to see a lot of little insights about the film, about my experiences in Indian country with other Native American projects I'm doing. Um, the film is available on Amazon Prime in the U.S. and Canada and the U.K. and on iTunes everywhere, pretty much, if your listeners are, are based in other countries. Wonderful. Again, thank you so much for taking the time today. Michael, it was so much fun. Thank you for giving me this time on your weekend. I am going outside and jogging around the block right now. <laughs> Yahoo! <laughs> Thanks again for listening to Future Fossils. If you want to help kindle the flame of these conversations in the world, trip on over to patreon.com slash Michael Garfield and become a regular supporter or leave a review on Apple podcasts or just share with your friends. All of those things help. If you have any comments, questions, suggestions, you can reach out to me directly. Future fossils podcast at gmail.com until next time.